group down here. Isn't this awesome? Really delighted what God's doing in the midst of our youth. Amen. Appreciate our college leaders, too. They do a great job, and uh, Steve was bragging on them this morning. Y'all really ought to give them a hand. They're, they're doing a great job. Uh, let me share with you some uh, just some results of your generosity. Um, as of today, like right now, this minute, uh, we only owe $3,500 on our debt. Think about that. That's just amazing. Um, which means this. I'm going to give you another figure that I think is pretty interesting. If we gave um, a certain amount today, uh, you know I'm, I'm, I'm heading somewhere. If we gave a certain amount today, um, we could pay it off today. Leave this building. Pay off. Let me tell you why I wanted to mention it, because I did the math. And if we gave a certain number to the capital campaign today, it would pay off the debt completely. And that number is very significant because the number is $7,777.77. That's like the perfect number. Okay? And I thought, what a perfect time to throw the perfect number out and say, I wonder if we could leave here today and everybody just kind of rethink while I'm preaching and before you nod off for that nap, that you could think about saying, you know, I'm going to just give an extra offering today and maybe with all of us today throwing a little something extra in, you could drop it off to us at the door. I know Melvin would be happy to get a couple of plates and meet you at the back door. And we could finish this thing off and come back next week and say, wow, we're done with the debt. Wouldn't that be good? So I'm in, and I'm going to give something that's in my pocket uh, that's for that, and I hope you'll get in. I'm going to get one of those little envelopes, and I'm going to say, Capital Campaign, I'm going to give it to one of our ushers at the door when we leave, and we're going to give a little try to finish this off. That would be really, really Awesome. You have done. Think about this. We've paid this much debt off in uh, uh, two and a half months. That's amazing. I don't know if anybody thought that this was actually possible. But God has been at work and so I'm really delighted. Second thing I want to mention to you is that we are, we have different seasons in church. Uh, we have like Thanksgiving season and we have Christmas season. We have Easter season. We also have upward season. Y'all know that? And we're entering into upward season and it is one of the biggest and most effective ministries of our church in connecting with our community. I found out this past week that the average upward soccer league across the nation has about 150 players. Our average is 310 over the last 14 years. And so ours is double the national average, and it means that it's been done very effectively. On any given season, we have about 1,060 people pass through uh, our fields on Saturdays hearing the Scripture taught and the Gospel shared. And so we're in the recruiting phase right now. And let me tell you a couple of things we need. We need prayer. We're getting ready to launch our 100 days of prayer. You'll get an outline for that. 
and it will have a daily prayer guide. Uh, you can go ahead and start praying now that this will be an effective ministry connecting with our local community. Second, we need coaches. You do not have to be a soccer expert to coach. We need coaches to sign up. And if you're interested in that, you can drop us a line with that tear-off that's on your worship guide. Or you can go online and look there. Or you can contact Christetta Miller or Wendy Blocker. They will connect you with that. And coaches, be aware there is a new sign-up process. So notice that. And you can also come to the church office and get a form. I'm really delighted that we're getting ready. I don't know if you've ever been to an Upward Soccer Family Night. How many of you have been to Upward Soccer Family Night? Raise your hand. It is the most packed that our sanctuary is every year. It's absolutely full. And every year the community comes out, fills the sanctuary, and one more time the gospel message is made crystal clear to the families, to the children, to the relatives as we celebrate Upward Family Nights. This is a really great opportunity for us to do ministry. I hope you're engaged. Uh, personal favor I want to ask of you. I'm in charge of recruiting vehicles for the Life Action Ministry Team. As they come in, they come in in a bus, and they stay in our homes, but they need some transportation to drive back and forth to the church from our homes. And so I need to ask you if you would lend us your car for a week, uh, the week of the Life Action Ministry. When they come in, we'll need it on a Thursday, and when they go out, we'll give it back to you on a Friday. They're coming in and they're going out. It's a week and a day, and we would love if you would loan us your car. Now, if you could do that, would you write me a note again on that little tear-out or send me an email or give me a call? I would be glad to sign you up and explain everything to you. Now, turning to Jonah, join me in Jonah chapter 1. What a delightful book. What a convicting book. Working through this has been painful to my heart, but I know that God is using this time to grow us in His likeness. At the top of your outline, you will see the missional mindset. This is sort of the mantra of the thing that I say over and over and over about what God is doing at Kingsville Baptist Church, what He's doing in our hearts, what our goal ought to be. It is to seek to know God, to grow in His likeness and to show others what He is like. This is what Jonah was supposed to be doing. Through his knowledge of God, he was supposed to be putting on the character and nature of God and then going out to show others what God is like. And he did not want to do that. The breakdown was in how he was coming to know God. He was coming to know God informationally rather than transformationally. He was coming to know God intellectually but was not coming to know Him the way that He should in His heart. And God had to take Him through some difficulties to get that process to begin to happen in His heart. In your outline, there's a heading kind of kicking us off after that, and that is, the book of Jonah is the story about a couple of different kinds of heart. Back me up one, if you would, Jared, please, sir. There we go. The first is the self-righteous, which is the arrogant heart. That's Jonah. The second is the heart of the rebel. That's the Ninevites, the wicked heart. 
their wickedness, their sinfulness came up before God in such a way that it was almost like it was as if it was stacked up to heaven. And it came up before Him. And then, it's about the heart of the Redeemer. What is God's heart like? He is a pursuing, loving, compassionate, merciful God. And throughout the book, that's how He's... He's displaying himself and it really frustrates Jonah because Jonah wants God, listen carefully, he wants God to be like him rather than him being like God. So one of the great struggles of humanity. Very often, the God that we say that we worship, the God that we say that we serve, is a God who's been literally created in our image rather than us being created in His. And the result is, is we try to put onto God certain character traits or certain kinds of nature that are like our character traits or like our nature, and God is not like us at all. Instead, He wants us to put on the character traits and nature that He has through the new birth, through our faith in Jesus Christ, and transform us into His likeness and make us capable of connecting with the lost world, and displaying to them what God is really like. That's what Jonah didn't want to do. God sent him on a mission to a group of people that he hated and that he detested and that he had in his heart such a disdain for that he would rather, listen carefully, he would rather they be destroyed than they be saved. He would rather they be judged then they repent. And so his hatred toward them, his animosity toward them was such that he preferred their condemnation rather than their salvation. And it was an ugly picture of a man who should have been an effective prophet. Well, as we get into chapter 2, I would like to do something introducing the chapter And that would be to break down the structure of the chapter and the prayer. So let's walk through the outline real quick. First, the location and duration. Jonah is told to have been thrown overboard. And after he goes overboard, he starts to sink. And he doesn't survive long in the sinking. He'll describe that in a few minutes. In fact, he'll say that as my life was fading away, so it looks like that it was at the very point of drowning when the fish actually laid hold of him. So however long that was, Jonah's in the water, he's sinking, and then he's in the belly of this fish for three days. It says in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So he's thrown into the water. And so the location of Jonah's prayer and the duration of what's going on is he's thrown into the water, so he spends part of the time in the water, and and he's sinking, and he's losing consciousness to the point that in chapter 2, verse 7, he starts verse 7 by saying, As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. So it took literally a near-death experience for Jonah to have this moment of awakening. He had to get to this place where his life is literally fading away. He's drowning 
before this fish comes and rescues him and holds on to him for those three days and three nights before he is rescued onto the shore by the fish. So, the structure of his prayer starts out with the location and duration of the events. Second, the open and close. Jonah 2.1 and 2.10 sort of form, uh, it's like a sandwich. There's this, this piece of bread and then the meat of the prayer and then there's this piece of bread. And it starts with verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord God from the belly of the fish. And then in verse 10, there's the other end of it, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So there's these two verses that kind of serve as an opening and a closing to the events of Jonah's prayer. The fish takes him in, Jonah's revived in his consciousness as he was about drowned, and and all of this expression to God begins to take place. And then the ending is that the Lord commands the fish, and this very unceremoniously, the fish sort of goes up onto the shore and just goes back, and Jonah pops out. And 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 it's just, it's it's intended to be sort of a an unceremonious picture of how the prophet is going to begin his journey. It was much different than the call that he received earlier, where the Lord appeared to him and spoke to him and sent him, and he ran away. Now, it's like he's vomited out, and whatever the contents of this fish's stomach are, just out onto the beach with him, and Jonah gets up and and, and gets himself together and, and goes and does the task. It goes a little bit further, and there's an overview statement. Chapter 2, verse 2, is just one statement, sort of like is written in the Psalms, that kind of gives an overview of the whole experience. Verse 2 says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and He answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol, and you heard my voice. And so there's this picture of an overview of what happened. I called. I cried, you answered, you heard. And so that's a summary of the whole event. He's wanting you, the reader, to hear how God answered in the midst of his distress. After that is the descent. Now, the descent is very interesting, and I'll go into depth in, in point number two in a minute. But the descent is like Jonah's just on this downward spiral. And if you read the descent in verses 3 through 6, listen to how it happens. You threw me into the depth. So here he is going overboard and first hitting the water. Alright? And watch how he spirals down into the water and is losing consciousness. Listen to his description. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas. The currents overcame me, and your breakers and your billows swept over me. So he's getting sucked under, and the waves are rocking, and he can't tread water. So you're seeing now how he's slipping under. Then he says, but I have said I've been banished from your sight. Now he's slipping under the water. But I will look once more Toward your holy temple, and he's thinking, which direction is Jerusalem? Why does that matter? Well, remember in Daniel, when Daniel got ready to pray, where did he face? He faced Jerusalem. He turned toward Jerusalem, oriented himself, and began to pray. Jonah is sinking, and he's going, which direction is the temple? 
Well, I gotta turn myself and orient myself to look to the devil because I gotta have rescue. I've gotta call out to God. And so he's sinking. So you seeing him just go down and down. Verse five, the water engulfed me up to the neck. Can you feel it now? Can you feel Jonah's experience? Have you ever come close to drowning? Some of you have been through an experience and you remember what it was like. I remember one time nearly drowning and it is forever etched into my mind. Because while I was underwater, I literally was disoriented into which way was up. And it was just a couple of milliseconds probably, but it felt like what? It felt like eternity. It's like I'm forever under this water. It says, the water engulfed me up to the neck, the watery depths overcame me. Seaweed encircled my head. And then, no longer able to fight, no longer able to tread, look at his descent. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. He gave up. He fought all he could. He struggled all he could. The waves are rocking. He's here. He's grabbing seaweed, all he can get. And then, he's under. No longer able to fight. He's dropping. He's losing consciousness. So you got his descent. He's in the water. And then you see his ascent. There's this turning point at the end of verse 6. It's halfway through. Then you raised my life from the pit. So here he is. He's given up. He's going down. And the fish comes along and says, and grabs him. And swallows him. And Jonah lands in the fish's belly. I'm still trying to put my mind around that. I believe it's absolutely, totally, accurately, infallibly true, but I do not understand how it's working itself out right now. But here he is inside the gastric juices of a fish that's probably been dining on a few other things, and he's in there, and he is now not yet fully rescued, but not any longer drowning. And so there's this moment of ascent. He starts in the belly, and then from this point in the psalm, you see, I mean, in the the prayer, he starts to go up. And it says ascent, and then finally he's dumped out on the beach at the end. And then finally in this is the deliverance. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 10, how this fish actually worked and brought about the deliverance and vomited him out onto the dry land. So that's the structure of the prayer. If you look at it that way, you can actually track what's going on in Jonah's life and how he is experiencing grace even in the midst of this most horrendous moment. Um, So let's jump into... uh, I want to share with you five words I want you to take home today and a few things around those words. The first word is simply... Attitude. That's what the book of Jonah is about. If you really know, what's Jonah about? It's about attitude. It's not about missions. Jonah does the mission, but the mission doesn't fix his attitude. 
the book of Jonah is about attitudes. Now, the interesting thing is Jonah's attitude was the kind which is frequently and easily developed in the regular practice of religion. Please hear this. If you walk with anything else from the book of Jonah, I don't want you going away going, you know, Bart preached today on missions. No, it's not what I'm preaching about. Jonah's not about missions. Jonah can be applied to missions in a thousand ways. Jonah's story is about attitude. And it is about the kind of attitude that is born in a heart of a very religious person. A person who's regular in their religion. And it's easily born and frequently born in that heart. Where do we get that? Come with me real quick to Matthew chapter 6 and watch this. In Jesus' day, the most religious people that you could ever imagine were leaders in the communities of Israel. They had been given a name, and originally that name had an honor and a distinction to it, and it was the name Pharisee. And and it's related to a term that means purity or pure one. And the Pharisees were very religious, regularly religious. They were religious down to the minutiae. When they would go and buy vegetables at the grocer, they'd go out into the marketplace and they'd buy some herbs and some spices and they would take those herbs and spices, tiny little portions, and divide them into tenths and slide a tenth of that off and take it down and give it as an offering to the, at the temple. They were religious to the point of extreme minutia. I mean, very small. And so here is a, a religious community and listen to what Jesus says about them. In chapter 6, verse 1 of Matthew, it says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father. And then he says, So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets in order to be applauded by people. And who's he talking about? He's talking about the Pharisees. He's going to say that they're giving and that they're praying and that they're fasting are all very religious, very regular activities, but they are producing an attitude, listen, of superiority. If your religion makes you feel superior to any human being made in the image of God, which is every human being, then your religion is vain. Please hear this. This is what the book is about. It's about how you and I size up other people and categorize them based on our Standards. Jonah sized up the Ninevites and he would rather them perish than repent because of his disdain for them. The book of Jonah is a revelation that in the most religious church attending, regular practicing person, 
the ugliest heart imaginable can happily dwell in that person. My brothers and sisters, the book is about us. And it is about the danger of self-righteousness. And it is bringing to the surface one of the most horrendous things about humanity. And that is that we can serve fervently and yet feel that we deserve God's grace and others don't. This lesson has been working on me. I'm not sure I like what it's doing, but I know that very often I size up other people and categorize them and think things about them that if they were published, I would be embarrassed by the publication. I'm that kind of sinner. Listen to the words of Tim Keller. He says, it's in your outline. Jonah wants a God of his own making. A God who simply smites the bad people, for instance, the wicked Ninevites, and blesses the good people, for instance, Jonah and his countrymen. When the real God, not Jonah's counterfeit, keeps showing up, Jonah is thrown into fury or despair. Listen carefully. You can be tied to the right cause. You can be tied to the right side. You can be tied to the right country. You can be tied to the right politics. You can even be tied to the right God and yet not be righteous. That's where Jonah was. Come with me real quick to a passage that is stunning to me and should convict us all today. It's in the book of Joshua. It's in chapter 5. You see, in Jonah, there is an attitude that existed prior to him that sort of um, tainted Joshua a bit, and Joshua had to be corrected about it. And so if you go with me to chapter 5, there's this moment that Joshua encounters somebody. It's in chapter 5, verse 13. So come with me there, Joshua 5.13. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua approached him and said, Are you for us or for our enemies? Now listen carefully. Joshua thought that because he was an Israelite, that because he was religious, that because his history was a history of doing right, that God would automatically think like Joshua thinks. So Joshua encounters the angel of the Lord, and he says to him, Whose side are you on? Mine, ours, are the enemies. And the, and the answer is, no. Joshua is confronted with the fact, listen, verse 14, Neither I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. What now Joshua had to answer was whose side was he on? See, we think by, by our right causes, 
We think that by our right politics, we think by our right nationality, we think that by our right ethnicity, we think about the right this, right that, right that, that we are automatically right. And what Jonah found out is, no. Only God is right. And only God is righteous. And we either come in under His grace and join the gift of His righteousness that is given freely by grace, or we have no righteousness at all. And so Jonah's attitude is the kind of attitude that is cultivated and thrives in church. Not out in the wastelands of wickedness. Not out in the paganism of unrighteousness. The kind of attitude that Jonah has is fed and watered by religion. It grows easily there. Because, my brothers and sisters, it is easy to maintain a surface for others to see. That's easy. It's easy to make pretense. It's easy to pretend. It's easy to fake it. It's easy to do those things. Jonah did that. He spoke for God, had revelation from God, yet in his heart, the heart of God was not beating. And so Jonah is a story about attitudes. Second, I want you to know the word down. This is just one of those great statements. Away from God equals down. Jonah goes down to Joppa. Jonah goes down into the boat. Jonah goes down into the lowest part of the boat. It's described in chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, Jonah goes down into the sea to the lowest part. Everything in chapter 1 and to the moment of ascent starting in chapter 2 is about this. To go away from God is always a downward direction. The question that I want to ask you is, how low do you need to go before God gets your attention? How far down? You see, Jonah was not on the surface looking like a very downward guy. He was a prophet of God. He was highly respected. He's mentioned in 2 Kings, one of the few prophets that's mentioned during that period. All of these things that Jonah's got going on the surface for him, but the problem was is that he was going downward long before he ever hit that boat. To go away from God. Three different times in chapter 1, the presence of God is mentioned as what Jonah is running from. And then in chapter 2, Jonah sort of succeeds in chapter 2, verse 4, where he says, But I've said, I said, I've been banished from your sight. In other words, I understand that away from God is down. And that away from God is not where I want to be. And suddenly Jonah realizes that away from God is not the place to be. Chapter 1, verse 3. The presence of God is mentioned as that which he's trying to flee. Chapter 1, verse 10. 
He's trying to flee the presence of God. Chapter 2, verse 4. He gets what he thinks he's after in this downwardness. Thankfully, God's presence is still there. But this is what it's like to be away from the presence of the Lord. It's a downward trajectory. And you see the quote that I have in your outline from Peter Craigie. But not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible. I want to ask you a question. How far down will God need to take you for you to get it? The Bible says, for whom the Lord loves, He chastens. Number three. Third word, awakening. This is a great word. There's this moment it all comes together, but he has to work through a process. I'm going to share with you what J.I. Packer said, and you've got it in your Jonah book. Here's what J.I. Packer said. Three crucial truths which the doctrine of grace presupposes. If they're not acknowledged and felt in one's heart, clear faith in God's grace becomes impossible. Jonah had to experience this. First, he had to experience what we deserve. Jonah finally understood that the same kind of judgment that was on those sinners was upon that sinner. Jonah came to understand that God cast him into the sea. And as God cast him into the sea, he was simply getting what he deserved. Listen carefully. There's another moment of casting in the Bible where it says that death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. And that everyone whose name was not written in the Lamb's book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The Scripture is crystal clear about the nature of sin and sinners, Jonah gets it. You cast me into this judgment. I got what I deserved. And so he finally understands he's getting what he deserves. The second thing Jonah had to realize was his inability. One of the most moving stories I ever heard in my life was the story of a child about seven years old, a young boy. He was enthralled with caped heroes. And one that he was particularly enthralled with was Superman, because Superman was caped and he could fly. So he did like a lot of little boys, myself included, have done. He put a cape on. He took a piece of cloth, it may have been a towel or it may have been part of a bed sheet and he made a cape and he tied it securely around his neck and he started running around the house playing Superman and he ran to his bedroom and he started bouncing on the bed and he decided he was going to see if he could fly. And so he leapt off the bed and the bed was a four-poster, you know those tall post bed? And as he left, his cape snagged on that post and it hung him. And there he was in midair, hung by 
this knot around his neck, and his feet were only about three inches from the floor. Just enough that his toes touched but couldn't take any relief off of him. And he dangled there helplessly, choking to death. Jonah was dangling helplessly, drowning. He had been in control up to this point. He was choosing destinations, choosing ships, choosing sleeping quarters, choosing to sleep. All of this was going on and Jonah was quite comfortable commanding his own life because Jonah was in control. Jonah was in charge. And suddenly, like that seven-year-old boy, he was at a place where he was no longer in control. Jonah sinks Jonah begins to drown. He begins to lose consciousness. He begins to cry out to God. He is utterly unable to save himself. My brothers and sisters, for us to ever experience the grace of God, these two things must take place. We must understand what we deserve. We deserve not to be cast into the sea, but into the lake of fire. And we must understand our inability to save ourselves. None of us can save ourselves. We are like Jonah drowning. We are like the seven-year-old boy hanging. There's nothing we can do. And our life, though Jonah's was only minutes, though that little boy's was only seconds, even if you live to 90, your life will feel like a vapor at its moment of cessation. You are unable to save yourself. Jonah, unable. Jonah, getting what is deserved. We, getting what we deserve. And so, the final thing is the costliness of grace. Jonah looked to the temple two times in his prayer because at the temple was the place of the mercy seat where the sacrifices were offered and there was a cost for forgiveness. And Jonah looked there and he cries out and he says, I will sacrifice the only thing I can give up right now and that is the voice of thanksgiving. I'm drowning, but God, I thank You that even though I'm a sinful man, You are worthy of my worship. And he sacrifices the only thing that he can in hopes that God would hear him because he knows that at the mercy seat a sacrifice is required, a payment for sin is required. Jonah doesn't understand what you understand. What you understand is that that sacrifice with Jesus Christ and that the cost of your salvation is his life. That the life of Jesus Christ must be taken to provide life for you. The blood of Jesus Christ must be shed to make an atonement for you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ must occur in order that your justification can be fulfilled. The costliness of grace is that grace isn't cheap and it isn't free. It came at God's greatest expense. As a result, Jonah prays. I'm going to walk quickly through this last part and bring you to a conclusion. 
This last part I give you courtesy of the work of John Piper. I, I could have tried to rewrite it and, and make it look like I came up with these things, but I saw no better summary of everything we've learned to this point than these seven things that happen in Jonah's prayer. So walk with me through them. Here we go. Number one, first God answers us in spite of our guilt. Jonah did not deserve to be answered. He was guilty, fled from God, didn't want God, wanted away from God, disobeyed God, rebelled against God, didn't care what God cared for, yet God answered in spite of his guilt. I don't know where you are today and how guilty you are. If you're like me, it's pretty guilty. But here's the wondrous thing. God's answers are not based on our guiltiness. God answers because we are guilty. Second, God answers us in spite of His judgment. Jonah was guilty, and Jonah was under God's judgment. God cast him in the sea and was taking away his life. Yet God's willing to answer in the midst of judgment. God could be judging your life right now in one of a thousand ways, but He is waiting on you to call out to Him in genuine faith. Third, God answers us and delivers us from impossible circumstances. There was no way for Jonah to get out of this. He was losing consciousness. He was sinking down to the very bottom of the sea. He was dropping like a rock. There was no way out. The seven-year-old boy was hanging by his neck, life slipping away. All of a sudden, everything he'd ever hoped and dreamed of accomplishing, shrinking down to a last few seconds of his life. Jonah thinking, I can get away from God, and now he's going to have to face God in eternity. All of these things are happening, and it's an impossible deliverance. Your sin is such that there is no possible deliverance unless there is a miraculous intervention. Number four, God answers us in the nick of time. Look at Jonah, verse 7 of chapter 2, as my life was fading away. He was losing consciousness. The seven-year-old was losing consciousness. Because he was hanging by his neck, he couldn't even cry out. And by God's grace, that seven-year-old's mom opened the bedroom door and saw her son hanging there, face purple, air out of the lungs, last minutes of life. She ran over, grabbed him, and lifted him up and saved his life when he had no hope. That seven-year-old is a guy by the name of Don who has been a pastor now for about 40 years. And he tells that story very frequently as he shares the gospel because he says, I was that close to eternity without Jesus. Some of you, you're in that position right now. You're like Jonah, you're losing consciousness. You're like the man who was hanging and you have no hope to deliver yourself, but God will come in in the nick of time as Jonah had his last breath. God swallowed him up with the fish. Fifth, God answers us in stages, not all of which are comfortable. There was not a lot to be said for three days in a fish. 
It wasn't. Sometimes when God rescues us in the nick of time, He doesn't take us right where we want to be. He takes us in stages where we need to go. He gives us a period of time to think through what we've been through. Jonah had three days and three nights in the belly of a fish to go, I'm not sure about my life choices at this moment. I don't think that they're real good. need to rethink those. Sometimes those stages are uncomfortable and break us away from things. I was reading in Exodus this morning as our class was, was studying together that when God took them out of Egypt, He had to break them of all the comforts of slavery by taking away all that good food and the security that they knew and make them trust God. Six, God answers us in order to win our undivided loyalty and thanks. That's what He's after. A relationship. But that relationship of undivided loyalty and thanks is a faith relationship in which Jonah was struggling still afterwards. We'll talk about that in the next two weeks. And finally, seventh, God answers us in our guilty distress to help us become merciful like He is. Remember at the beginning I said that we are to know God, grow in His likeness, and show others what He is like? That's all Jonah needed to do. He needed to know that God was merciful, let that mercy enter his heart and make him merciful, so that he could go and show God's mercy to other people. That was all Jonah was about. And it was about an attitude that pushed that mercy away because of self-righteousness. In the end, we have deliverance. I grew up on some hymns that keep coming back to me. Y'all ever have that happen? I grew up standard Southern Baptist church, and we sang a lot of old hymns and gospel songs. And one of the songs that we sang was this song. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my distressing cry, and from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me, love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. I don't know how far you have sunk or how far God needs to sink you. Or if you're at a place where you came in today and you literally have said to yourself, I'm too far gone. I've done too much. Been too bad. Gotten too far. Listen. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. 
You breathe Him, you're not too far away. You might be at the place where your life is fading away, but you're not too far. I ask you to bow with me. Being a Jonah is an ugly thing. Knowing the truth, having it taught to us, going through the motions with that truth and making pretense that we're good to go while scorning other people that aren't as good or nice or whatever as we are. That's an ugly thing. But God in His love is not afraid to just about drown us. Just to wake us up. Some of you, you're here and you're just about there. You feel like a little bit more and your life will end. You'll just be overwhelmed by your waves. God, in His great love, has let Jesus jump down into... See, He's the greater and better Jonah and He's a lot better than a fish. And He will jump into your water and into your mess and into your life and He will bring you up and give you life. If you would today, stop the pretense and turn. Stop the pretending and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Own up to what you deserve. Death, hell, judgment. Own up to your inability. No religion, no self-righteousness, no turning over a new leaf or starting fresh is going to fix you. And understand the cost of grace. What Jesus has already done to give you forgiveness. Would you turn to Jesus now? Let Him breathe His life in you. Let Him rescue you. Sing with us. Stand with us as we sing, Love Lifted Me.